We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 274. Our guest today is a dressage rider with a super impressive resume at the top levels of the sport, having competed in two FEI World Cup finals, numerous top placings in Nations Cups, CDI five stars, and other top Grand Prix competitions. She has earned gold medals from the USDF and the German Federation. She grew up in the U.S., took a two-month trip abroad, which turned into two decades of a career in Germany, learning about dressage, riding, training, and breeding, and building her business, and then eventually came back to the United States and continued her business. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Catherine Haddad. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Bethany. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, it's my pleasure. Amazing. Well, I am so excited to hear about how you got to where you are today. First, tell me how you got started in the horse world. Well, I got started at home in Michigan with a Shetland pony that was a gift from my mother. Hmm. And my family and myself knew nothing about horses at all. So the pony actually lived in the garage for the first three weeks -uh. at our (laughs) farm. And so we could get a, a fence and a stable built. But that was how I got started. And then I had a sort of short journey through 4-H, which led me into some eventing when I went to college. And I loved the dressage leg of the eventing so much that maybe I should say that the horses that I was I was riding at the time were much more appropriate for dressage than they were for eventing. And mm. so I ended up pursuing dressage. Okay. We need to hear the story of Susie a little bit. Like I, I need to <laughs> hear how that was all kind of brought into your life. How did you get her? Your mom was the one who gave her to you. How did that all unfold? Well, Susie was a Shetland pony. And when I had irritated my mother to the point where she wanted to pull (laughs) all her hair out, that I really, you know, wanted and needed a pony. I think I was six years old. Uh, She finally said, okay, well, I've, I've heard of someone who raises Shetland ponies. Let's go there and we'll find one for you. So we went to a kind of a local farmer who had 400 wild Shetland ponies on his farm that were just breeding indiscriminately. And he pointed to a four-year-old mayor pony and said, take that one. That one has a super temperament. Well, it was untouched. It was wild. So he actually managed to catch it. I don't even remember how. And he put it in the back of our station wagon and it laid laid down in the back of the station wagon. We took it home. Yeah, that was how my career started in horses. Wow. Laid down like a dog in the back of the station wagon. No. Probably so shocked. Yeah. I mean, wow. I would never do it today, but that's how <laughs> that's how we got the pony home. Wow. And then and then I had to learn how to put a halter on and how to put a bridle on. And the pony, of course, didn't cooperate very much in the beginning. And but ponies are kind of of that size are sort of easy to to deal with. And we had a local 4-H guy who helped me with it. But I rode her bareback. Uh, for the first like three months that we had her, she bucked me off every single day, <laughs> but it took her a little longer each day to decide to dump me. So that was how I learned to ride it. As long as I could stay on, I was learning how to ride. Wow! And after 90 days, I could stay on the whole time. 
Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Uh, there, there was another somewhat, you know, difficult horse that came into your life, but many years later, I'd love to hear the story of Isotops, how you kind of learned from him and how that's kind of carried over into your training now. Isotopes. Isotopes. Um, yeah, he was a Russian tracaner, we think. We weren't entirely sure of his bloodline, but he came to me through a stable in Italy and had been shown before. But when he arrived in Germany, he just had this, this terrible faraway look in his eye. He wasn't comfortable. He wasn't happy. He wouldn't eat. He didn't respond to people. And at the time, I, pr- I might have approached it a little bit differently, knowing what I know now. But at mm-hmm. the time, I, I was I was youngish. I was probably around 30. And I had never had a horse respond to me in this way. I mean, the horse wouldn't even take sugar from my hand. But wow. he would he would eat his meals after we left the stable at night. So, you know, looking back, he probably had terrible ulcers. But that was, you know, 30 years ago. And in Germany then, nobody knew about ulcers or treated ulcers. So anyway, it took us a long time to co- coax him into sort of eating and and getting getting into a regular routine in the stable. And it took me just as much, if not longer time to get him to respond under saddle. Because when you saddled him up and you tried to ride him, he was not disobedient in any way. He just wouldn't respond. You know, he, you'd ask him to go to trot and two or three steps later, he'd go to trot. You'd canter around on him and and ask for a flying change. And two or three steps later, he would do the flying change. He just wasn't interested in anything and very, very difficult to get on the bridle. I mean, you couldn't really, you couldn't do anything at all with your hands. He had to only be driven from behind. And since he wasn't really responding to the driving aids, he just, you know, sort of refused to do it for many weeks. But I did eventually, it was, I had ridden him out in the forest one day and I had kind of given up and I thought, well, I can't ride him and this is really disappointing, but I'm not going to beat him to make him go. And I'm not going to, you know, compromise the way I would normally treat a horse to make him go. And I took him out in the forest and I, I spoke to him in English and I said, Isotopes, I'm young. This is the beginning of my career. I can't save every horse that comes to me. I can't afford to do that. So dude, I need you to I need you to show me something. I need you to tell me you're going to give back and you're going to help me with my career if I have you stay. Because I had an incredible compassion for this horse and I didn't want to send him down the road. I wanted to figure out what was wrong with him. And after I talked to him like that, he um, he kind of shied at something. And then he like picked up this hugely elevated passage and got a little bit crazy on me with his, his tail over his back. Hmm. And then sort of picked up canter and went down this path in the forest and started doing one tempies. And I thought, well, if there's a sign, wow. <laughs> there's a sign right there. And wow. from I, I began to understand at the again at, at the time nobody knew anything about ulcers. This was 30, 35 years ago. I began to understand that he was very ring sour and that he did not want to work in the arena. So I trained him in the in the forest for several weeks after that. And then that was the horse that I won my first. FEI class on in Germany. Wow. Speaking of Germany, one of your mentors gave you advice to take a little trip to Germany to train and to learn more about the discipline of dressage. Well, obviously that two month trip turned into quite a few years abroad. Um, Tell me a little bit about that season of your life. Well, it was two two decades. I stayed in Germany (laughs) for 20 years. And they were in some ways the best 20 years of my life. I loved it. I enjoyed every minute of it. 
It wasn't easy because I didn't speak German when I moved there. It took me a long time to learn the language. I learned it mostly by ear. And it was it was not an easy time in my life, but it was a fantastic, exciting time full of dreams and full of hopes. And I really got great expo- exposure to the highest and best end of the sport while I lived in Europe. And later, it took me many years to get to the level that I needed to be at. But later, I was able to actually to compete also at the highest end of the sport internationally um, on a circuit around Western Europe. And it was just, it was fabulous. What did you, what were kind of like your expectations of horses in Germany or, or kind of like what you thought you would experience? And then what was the reality upon arriving and starting to learn during your time in Germany? I expected to see, okay, my expectation was that everyone in Germany would ride better than me. And that I would learn from that. Hmm. And what I found when I got there was that that just like here in the United States or anywhere in the world, there are different levels of riding in every horse culture. And you know, you can there was lower level dressage and there was beginner dressage and amateur dressage, and there was also professional dressage. But of course, in Germany, the professional dressage is much more prevalent than it is in the United States. And people are, there are some people who are incredibly skilled, like Isabel Baird. And when you can expose yourself to these people, that's perhaps the wrong way to say it. (laughs) When you get exposure to these people, you can watch them ride and watch them train and, and steal with your eyes what they're doing. That is incomparable to any other experience you'll have in your life. So totally. And, and by the time I was showing internationally, I was, you know, I was watching Isabel every weekend or every other weekend and working, you know, in the same arena next to some of the best people in the world. Um, Tina Wilhelmsen comes to mind. You can see her in the United States now. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Kittle and I kind of grew up together in the same arenas, the same um, type of competitions. He went on to a much more illustrious competitive career than I did, but we did start in the same places and at the same horse shows. So yeah, I was competing against the best in their own backyard and really learning from it and was sometimes quite successful. I know, obviously, when you first got to Germany, you were not expecting to have your own business and program. You obviously started your own training business and then breeding business. And obviously, to this day, you're still very active in both. What initially drew you to starting a breeding program? I think it was the quality of horses that I was seeing around me. And I had purchased a really fantastic broodmare. She was only seven at the time. And a couple of her first foals were quite incredible. But the breeder had, he had a lot of horses. He's still with us, by the way. His name is Ewald Grotolution. As far as I know, he's still with us. And he had he had quite an advanced breeding program. And he was always he's always keeping his best horses and eventually he had to sell something because he just had too many for his farm. And I was really pressing him to sell me this one mare because she was my ideal horse in my own head. That was a horse that I wanted to have to compete with. And I thought, okay, well, seven is not too old to convert her from a brood mare into a riding horse. But in the end, I failed with her because it was, it was too late. She had had, she had some arthritis in her joints and, hadn't really been broken in very well at the at the beginning of her work. And she just, she wasn't going to hold up physically because she'd spent most of her life standing around, you know, with babies hanging off of her. So she didn't have the well-lubed joints of a, of a well-trained dressage horse. 
She spent most of her winters stabled inside and, you know, was out on the fields with the babies in the summer. And it wasn't that she was lame or anything like that. She just, she did not have the uh, elasticity within her body Mm -hmm. that I needed to develop a a top um, sport horse out of. But what she did do was produce phenomenal foals. So she became my foundation broodmare. And I got so excited by the foals that she was producing and by my early success in breeding that I just, I just stuck with it. I, I seem to have a natural knack for it. I don't know about you, but whenever a horse friend or barn mate or trainer's birthday rolls around, I always struggle to think of the perfect gift. I always want something that really exemplifies the equestrian lifestyle. And recently I started ordering gifts and yes, some pieces for myself because the stuff is so cute, from Horse Scout Design. Horse Scout Design is the home of equestrian lifestyle gifts and homewares online. At Horse Scout Design, you can find products with super unique design prints by talented artists and photographers, or you can honestly personalize your own pieces through a photo of your horse or a design that you want to create for yourself, family, and any horse or animal lover in your life. I have so many cool blankets and throws. Um, I have a dog bed. There are so many options at Horse Scout Design that you can really personalize and really make a normal everyday homeware piece have the equestrian lifestyle vibe that you are going for. So for more information, visit their website at horsescoutdesign.com. There's obviously a lot of discussion around breeding in the U.S. versus breeding in Europe. What would you say are some of the biggest differences between the two? Ability to sell the offspring. Mm-hmm. Those are the, that's the biggest. That is okay. the number one biggest difference. So, in Germany, whenever I had a fullborn, within I would say four months, we were putting it on uh, four to six months. We were putting it on a horse trailer going to a branding day. And at the branding day, there might've also been a competition for the foals. And so you could show off your offspring among a groups of like-minded breeders. There, there would usually be 30 to 40 mares at these shows. And, you know, if your foal won the day, your name got around and people started offering you money, particularly if it was a stud colt, but also sometimes they would want the fillies. And your ability to sell a filly or a colt is just, it's almost instantaneous when the foal hits the ground in Germany, because there's so many different ways to market the foals, whether it's a foal show or a foal competition or online or the mares and foals, they don't generally speaking, grow up at your own personal farm. They grow up at what's called a raising farm or a a foaling and raising farm. And so when people want to buy foals, that's where they go to buy them. Whereas in this country, I I did breed here for many years. I I recently stopped breeding in the United States because I have found that it takes me until a horse is three or four years old before I can market it. And by that time, you have an awful lot of money into a horse in the United States. Whereas in Germany, you can, you can sell a horse as a foal quite easily, or you can keep it till it's three years old and break it in. And again, you have another period where you can sell it quite easily and at least recoup your money, but probably make a profit. Wow. Yeah. It's profitable to breed horses in Europe. Mm -hmm. It's really tough to do it here. What eventually brought you back to the U.S.? I fell in love with my husband and he's an American. So uh, we met at Gladstone at a selection trial for the 2010 World Equestrian Games. 
And we got married at the beginning of 2011. And I moved back to the United States in 2012. Okay. And obviously working with horses across the US and Europe has led you to another endeavor of yours, which combines your business and training skills uh, to create a fresh approach to buying and selling and training. Um, tell me a little bit about this business and why it was something that you wanted to start. Norcordia is the name of my new business, and I founded it with three Danish partners. We are a two-fold business. The first, and we call the front door of our business, is buying, training, and selling horses. And we decided that a lot of the sales that were taking place in the United States that were being represented by Europeans were not always based on as much integrity as we would like to do in our business. I've always carried a very good name in this business and I've produced horses that are honest, well, you know, well-bred, well-trained, sound, tested, proven, and they go onto the market that way. And I can stand behind every single horse that I sell. So I wanted to start a business that was international, global, in fact, that actually upheld those morals, if you will, or that ethical concern in selling horses and to make sure that the horses that we were selling were happy and well-trained and well-cared for and well-prepared to go into their future and not just, you know, moving horses through a system where you think, oh, that one might match, take that, try that, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, but really matching horses to riders and allowing the horses to choose you know, through trial and error, allowing the horses to choose their next partner. So that would, that's the front door of the business. And we're operating in both the dressage and jumping realm. And the back door of the business is we've also started an investment portfolio firm. So we allow these portfolios to run over three years and we bring in private investors who can buy a share in each portfolio. And as one horse sells out of the, out of the portfolio, we replace it with one or two more so that we can keep turning over horses for profit, obviously within our model of selling, and we can share those profits with private investors. And this is geared toward, I mean, I I have had a lot of people train with me over the years who, you know, they enjoy having their horses in training, but they're always complaining that they spend a lot of money on training and horses and everything else. And I, you know, if you've got a certain chunk of money that you could invest, you could also be making money while enjoying your, your, favorite hobby. So this is really a a lower end of investment. You're not investing millions to make money in your horses, but you can buy a share in a portfolio and you can purchase and you can watch the horses in the portfolio compete with our riders here in the United States and also in Europe, because each portfolio is spread from across the European continent and the United States. And you can keep track of where the horses are competing and you can enjoy top competitions for a small share in each portfolio or company. And uh, it's a new approach to investing in horses. And I'm pretty excited about it. The first portfolio is up and running and doing very well. Amazing. That is so cool. What can we expect to see from you in, you know, the next next upcoming months and into the new year? Well, we're headed down to Florida on the 1st of November. And of course, I'm taking all my competition horses with me and a few of those that I have that have come out of my breeding program as well. And we'll be bringing some really top sales horses to Florida. I have some of really what I consider top international quality, but I also have horses that are very well-trained and very reliable for the amateur market as well. 
Now our horses are going to be slightly higher quality than you would find in other places. But as far as character and temperament, they're all hand selected by me. And these are horses that I'm going to match to the right people and make sure that everybody has an enjoying, has an, has enjoyment on their journey when they take one of our horses. What would you say is an area of the industry that you're passionate about that you feel like the rest of the horse world either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Oh, there are several of those, especially after having lived in Europe for so long. There's a couple of things. One would be prize money and dressage. It doesn't really exist. Whereas in, uh, you know, unless you're showing at the top, top level in Wellington, you can win a little bit. But at your average show, there isn't a lot of sponsorship and there's there's um, prize money is non-existent. Whereas in Germany, all the years that I lived there, if I were to place first first through sixth in a pre-St. George, I always got some money back. So you could you could cover part of your showing expenses that way. But that is part of the German horse industry, which is very geared toward having professionals compete and to help professionals compete. I feel like in this country, the whole showing apparatus is geared more toward the wealthy amateur. And I I really feel like horse showing is becoming so expensive that your average professional who earns a living in this business is having a hard time showing their horses. And and some of the also the amateurs that are in a in a lower income category. And that's a shame because it really narrows the upper end of the sport. So I think we could we could rearrange our sponsorship and prize money structure at our horse shows. And try to have our show organizers earn more from sponsorship and less from entry fees. That would be fantastic. Yeah, there's 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 all kinds of, of subjects that, that I could get into. It'd probably take up too much of your time. <laughs> no, but I think that that's a really good point. I think that finding ways to make horses and, and the sport as a whole more accessible and um, more realistic to mm-hmm. continue, I think is going to be, you know, what's so important. And maybe that is building up, you know, more horse show associations or, or more venues where maybe that aligns better. Um, but yeah, it is, it's, I feel like been significantly increasing the past five to 10 years of just how crazy it is to be able to afford the sport. It can, it can really, like add up quickly and and maybe a, a level or like amount of showing that maybe you once did is now not an option because of how significantly prices have increased for everything. Absolutely. And tied into that is also our, our entry system and our federation, mm. you know, uh, memberships for federations and things like that. In Germany, I had one membership with the German Federation and they had an online system. This was already 30 years ago where I could go online and click on any horse show in Germany and enter it. And all my horse information was stored in the online database. And, you know, I, I would just go in, click in on what show I wanted to enter. I would pay my 20 euro to enter the show. And Mm -hmm. if I showed up to show three weeks later, I would pay my 15 euro start fee. And if I won or if I placed, I would get more than that back here. Yeah. Difficult to enter a horse show. Right. You have stack of documents you have to upload and every horse show has its own, you know, there's different entry systems for each horse show mm-hmm. and you have a whole slew of documentation that you have to find and upload and put on the sites. And you have to pay a lot of money in advance, which is rarely refundable unless you're within a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. 
And you don't, you don't have, for instance, in Germany, you always have a choice. You can say, I want two starting spots in the pre-St. George and you list maybe four horses. And when you get to the show, you declare which two you're starting with. So there's, there's no change fees. You can, you know, you, if you're training four horses at the same level, and again, this is geared toward professionals in Germany, but if you're training four horses at the same level, you can decide the day before the horse show, which two are ready to go. And if one of them loses a shoe or develops a summer sore, God forbid, you're not, you know, left with all your money in the dirt because um, you have another horse you can take. Right. Yeah. It's just much more of a well-oiled machine. And so it's definitely something that, you know, we should be looking toward for an example and of something that works really well. But I think on a positive note, it has given you that edge of what you have been able to bring back here to the U.S. um, having had that experience in Europe. Yes, there's no question. I did bring a lot of knowledge home with me. Amazing. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time and kind of unpacking a little bit of how you got to where you are today and what you're doing now. I think the the business that you have put together is so inspiring and, and so exciting. And I will continue to watch your journey, but I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Bethany. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.